you're crazy. The first time I heard Tom Waits, which is who that is, by the way, it's not Paul. I know you're like, that's Paul? I never knew that. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, it's Tom Waits. I wish Paul looked like that. Um, The first time I heard Tom Waits, I was in college, and my best friend loved this guy. I had never heard anything by him. And I remember this vividly. We were in his apartment, my best friends, not Tom Waits, and we were watching this old grainy VHS, okay? Uh, Now, I didn't go to college way back when we still had VHSs. It was still in that weird nebulous period, you know what I mean, where so much was still on VHS that wasn't on DVD. Now, this was a PBS special, and it was Tom Waits. And so I remember it was just him on stage the whole time, and I was like, I do not like this. This is horrible. I, I'm never going to get this time back in my life. But my friend loved it, and we were like watching it. And it was so bad that the VHS would like grain out, you know what I mean? Like it was so old and had been watched, and then this one part, it was just like fuzzed out. I was like, this is ridiculous. Why would you listen to this? I can't understand what he's saying. I, I mean, I can turn on Sesame Street and hear the Cookie Monster. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need to listen to him sing. Fast forward, like, three years ago, and I'm driving in my car. I've got it on, like, this weekend blues, right? It's late at night, driving home. And all of a sudden, a Tom Waits song comes on. And I remember just being like, this is awesome. This is what I've needed. I mean, it spoke so deep into me that I'm like, everything about this is what I want. And you can ask my, I mean, it's been years, and I'm still so in love with Tom Waits' music. It it just speaks to me in ways that no other music really does. Now, I know you're going, this guy is crazy. But I want to do a little experiment for you. Because I think what my experience was with Tom Waits, how like I was like, there's no way I, I would choose to listen to this. I hate it. I don't like it. And then to transform into something that just can't get enough of it, something had to happen, right? Waits' music stayed the same, but I had changed. I think a lot of people have this same experience with Paul. I call it the Tom Waits effect. You can have it with a lot of things, and it doesn't have to be music-related, right? There can be a food you didn't like, and all of a sudden you love it. What happened, right? Um, I want to play another song for you. And I w- I'm hoping, I mean, this might be a n- miserable failure, but what I'm hoping is that you will understand and maybe even like what you hear in this next song, okay? Now, that assumes that you may not have, I understand that there are, you, I mean, 
probably all of you are Tom Waits fans, right? Like you're all like, oh, I don't know where this is going because Tom Waits is awesome. But let's say you're not one of those people, okay? Um, Listen to this next song with that Tom Waits song in mind. is you're like, that's really kind of great, that song that I just heard. I mean, maybe not, maybe it doesn't. But let's just go with me for a minute. Let's say that that first song may have just been like, don't ever put me through that again. And the second song was like, yeah, I could listen to that. Like, that, that's kind of nice. It's the same song. It's the same. I mean, the, the cover of that song, the, co- the band covering that song is playing the exact same Tom Waits song. If you listen to that whole little thing, they even introduce it with, we're going to play a Tom Waits number right now. And you go, how can that be the same thing? Right? Here's what I would challenge you. I would challenge you that the, the woman singing that song understands Tom Waits' music. When you listen to her, she gives you a window into what she hears, right? She hears something really awesome in Waits' music. You would probably guess that she's a Tom Waits fan, right? But let's just say I played those in reverse order. Let's say I started with the cover and then played Tom Waits' music. How might that experience be different? Like, why are you playing, you know? It would, it would be kind of like this otherworldly experience, probably. I believe that Paul does this. I believe a lot of people find themselves in this situation where they're like, I do not really care for Paul. I don't want to listen to him. I don't want to read his words. It just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. There's something, when I read it, doesn't sound right. But you hear someone else, maybe a preacher, maybe anybody, and they speak the words of Paul, and all of a sudden you're like, but I like that. I like, I like that. I like what they're saying there. And you may not realize that it's Paul. It's kind of like listening to the cover of a song as opposed to listening to the, or reading it out for yourself. They have somehow shown you a world that you had assumed was something different. It, the best way to get to know someone like Paul is, or anyone is to Meet them in person, right? Well, I have bad news. Paul's dead. The next best way to get to know someone is to talk to people who know them, who get them, who understand them. Dare I say the best way to understand music that you don't like is to listen to other people cover it, okay? There's a book in the Bible, believe it or not, that is basically Paul's cover song. It's like they're covering Paul, and it's called Acts. It's not just about Paul. But a big chunk of it is. Now, Acts 
gives us a window into the psyche of Paul. And the psyche of Paul, the, the thing that makes him tick, okay, if you want to come to appreciate Paul, and let's say you've been over here with Paul, you've kind of held him at a distance. If you're like, I want to like this guy, but I just keep hitting these things. This word is what I would say acts, shows us, helps us get him. It's, it's zealous. It's Greek for zeal. All right? You might hear zealot in there, zeal, you know, like a zeal for God. Maybe you've heard that before. This word comes to epitomize Paul uh, in relationship to how you see Paul portrayed in the book of Acts. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 7. I want to show you an example of where Acts, without saying that Paul is zealous or zeal-filled or zealot or however you want to say it, without coming right out and saying it, instead it gives us an example of how zealous Paul is. Now, I'm going to explain this and then I'm going to try and explain what zeal is. But first I need to give you this passage, Acts 7, and you want to be at the end of Acts 7. Acts 7 is a speech. It's a speech that Stephen is giving. He's a Jesus follower, and he's before all the Jewish leaders, right? And he gives this long speech about the history of Israel, and at the end of it, he caps it off. The climax of his speech is like, you all are just like your fathers, Stephen speaking to the religious leaders. You kill all the prophets just like you killed Jesus. Well, they don't really like that. And then they do this thing where they get angry. Now, look, it starts in verse 54, right after Stephen is done speaking. It says, now, when they, the religious leaders, heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Have you ever been that angry? I have with my kids. I'm trying to think about it. Yeah. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Stephen, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out, the religious leaders, with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, a.k.a. he died. Now you read this and you get a sense of what zeal looks like. You get a sense, at least in a first century context. Now, you read this and you kind of go, that's really bad. Saul, you're a bad boy, right? We kind of get this sense of like, you may even think of it as like he's out of his mind. He's insane, He's some kind of a lunatic. You may even go as far as to associate his persecution and his association with killing people who are associated with the Jesus movement as something similar to Islamic Jihad. I want to get rid of all those ideas. As bad, and Acts would show us that this is bad, I'm not disputing that, as bad as we think it is, I want you to think of it from Paul's perspective. 
want you to think of Saul, pre-conversion Saul, before he comes to know Jesus, which will happen in two more chapters. This is the Saul who believes he's doing what is right. He, he believes his motivation is based on zeal. He is trying to be zealous for God. And there's something about the Jesus movement that he hates, that he despises, that he can't stand. Dare I say, he has this moment like I had when I was watching Tom Waits for the first time. That is, ugh, right? And I don't want anything to do with it. But we know, Paul's, if you know Paul's story, something happens, something switches, something changes. He has the Tom Waits effect happen to him, right? Now, I want to do this little experiment with you. Notice verse 57 in Acts right there, 757, I believe. You see what the religious leaders do when they hear Stephen say this thing about Jesus? I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand. What do the religious leaders do? They stop their ears and they start screaming at the top of their lungs. Now, I've seen that happen before, believe it or not, with like a toddler, Okay, like I, I'm not, nah, 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 you know, I'm not listening to you. Um, and then, of course, they go out and they kill him. Now, I want to show you what this is like. I am going to do a little demonstration for you. I, as you know, am zealous for Tom Waits' music. And by default, when you are a fan of a certain type of music, you must therefore hate other types of music. We all have experienced this, have we not? Right? Now, I'm going to show you an example of this because... Uh, the music I am zealous for is somewhat, like my wife likes Tom Waits, she tells me, um, but she likes other kind of music too, and one of which is ABBA. I can't stand ABBA. It is, it paralyzes me to listen to it. I will not scream at the top of my lungs, but I am going to stop my ears for this, okay? So this is kind of how it would have been like for Paul listening to Stefan. Is it over? You better not be tricking me. The only thing that was so horrible about having to put that in there is, is uh, Paul, Mark emails me and he's like, well, what 10 seconds do you want? I'm like, I have to listen to 30 seconds of this garbage to find it. And it was horrible. Now, I gave him a little bit of heck about that. I was like, oh, dude, just pick 10 seconds. I don't have to listen to it. Um, so Paul has the same kind of, I got to change this slide. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> Paul has this similar experience. He's standing there going, I can't stand this Jesus stuff. It's nasty. It's ruining our people. But something happens, right? Paul has this switch. But before we get to the switch, I need you to understand why what Paul, what Saul, pre-conversion Saul, I know that's a mouthful, Saul before he meets Jesus, maybe that's more understandable, why he's doing what he's doing. He's not doing it just because he, he has made up what following God looks like. He's following a pattern. He's following a pattern that he thinks has been set up for him. He's following a pattern that all good Jews at the time, at least a good number of them, would have 
followed and did follow in large numbers. Paul was in good company, dare I say, in his motivations. Now, this is hard for us. I get that. The idea of killing people to our sensibilities doesn't make sense. But I need to show you in the Old Testament, and I'm going to challenge your sensibilities here, because we tend to bring our own understanding of what good and right is into the Bible as opposed to letting us it show us what's good and what's right and what's God-pleasing. Let me give you two Old Testament examples that Paul would have looked to based on his actions. The first is in Numbers 25. This is an account of a guy named Phineas, and Phineas is a priest. Now, you got to put yourself in the Numbers context. Uh, the book of Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible, in your Old Testament, of the Torah. And it's the experience of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness in a general sense, okay? In Numbers 25, they've been wandering for a while, and they've made it up to the area known as Moab, which is bordering Israel, the promised land. Now, when they are here, if you know how the wilderness experience went, there, it was like a big roller coaster ride, mostly down, <laughs> A lot of failures on the Israelites' part, and this is no exception. They have come into contact with this people, the Moabites, and they are being influenced by the Moabites. They are being tempted by the Moabites to follow their God. The way that this gets described is the Baal of Peor, okay? They are starting to worship this God in large numbers. Now, they, you know, God is leading them through the wilderness, and the Moabites are starting to make, have them worship their God. Not only that, but the way that this kind of unfolds is that the Israelites are uh, starting to marry and have associations with the Moabites. I want to try and put that as gently as possible. And... All of this is kind of together. So uh, the, the Moabites are coming in. They're starting to have contact. They're even starting to uh, maybe even marry some of the Israelites, whatever that looked like. And now they're starting to worship these gods. Now, what happens as a result of this is God puts a plague upon the people, which if you know how the wilderness wanderings go, this is no uncommon thing. God would often do this when they strayed away from him. Ironically, the Bible will tell us the reason God does this kind of plague stuff is because he's jealous for his people. Now, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew originally. A few centuries before Paul comes on the scene, Greek is the major language. So they do the, the common thing that, the, you know, um, the common sense thing, and they translate the book into the language that most people can read, which at the time is Greek, which is where we get that word zeal. Zeal is Greek, zealous. Whenever you come across the word jealous in the Old Testament, usually in your English translations, it's translated in the Greek as zeal. The reason God plagues the people is because he's zealous for his people, as the Greek version would say. You know, you punish them because you're zealous for them? You're killing them because you have this deep longing for them? It's kind of backwards, isn't it? 
That's why jealous seems to do a little bit better justice in our English context, right? We can understand doing something like this out of jealousy. I love you so much. I can't believe you would do this to me. I'm going to hurt you, right? But that's not really God's motivation. He's zealous, and zeal is much different than our understanding of jealousy, all right? Jealousy in the Old Testament context is much different. It's got a good and a bad. In our vernacular, it's just bad, usually, jealousy, right? That's why zeal, I think, has a little bit better context for us. Because sometimes your motivations, it's all based on your motivations. Are your motivations good or bad? Do you want something God-pleasing out of this? God's always going to be a good jealousy. Or is this some other kind of motivation? What happens here in Numbers with Phineas is because this plague has broken out, he and Moses and all the other priests are gathered around and they're fasting and they're praying and they're, you know, asking God to get this plague off of them. As they're in the midst of this very concerted effort, this other Israelite, Phineas sees, out of the corner of his eye in the midst of this, walk into his tent with a Moabitess. So picture this. The plague is on you because of the Moabites and their God. You are trying to be diligent about this, and you see this, you know, Yahoo walk into his tent in the middle of this with a Moabite woman. Phineas grabs a spear, runs into the tent, and stabs both of them through. Now, if you are good, you know, kind of picturing this, to stab two people through, picture how that would have happened. Picture what might have been going on, all right, at the same time, right? Phineas does this. Phineas goes, and this is the thing, if you're looking at the account, God stops the plague because of what Phineas has done, and he says, because Phineas was zealous for me, and my covenant, and my law, I'm going to make a covenant of peace with him forever. Now, if you turn to Psalm 106, verse 30 and 31, you'll see that the psalmist says that what Phineas has done is considered righteous. It's right in God's eyes. It's not right in our eyes. I I get that. I don't understand that. But we have to understand that what we, our sensibilities don't always match God's. There's stuff that we don't always get. Let me give you another example. First Kings 1840. If you want to, you can turn there. This is an account about a guy named Elijah. Now, you might know Elijah for things like being fed by ravens, calling down fire from heaven, uh, getting the still small voice on Mount, God's mountain, Mount Sinai Horeb, uh, the widow of Zarephath and the miraculous you know, oil and all that stuff. But do you typically think of Elijah as after the fire comes down and consumes the altar on Mount Carmel, the 400 and however many prophets of Baal and and the other prophets of Asherah are there and they're, you know, doing their tomfoolery for like all day. And then Moses, Elijah does his thing for like two seconds. For Elijah, nothing for the prophets of Baal. Notice Baal again, numbers and first kings what happens then is after elijah's god is proved legit he takes all the prophets of baal and slaughters them in a valley it's horrible but later you will see elijah say i have been very zealous 
for the Lord God. He, and God never disputes that. What Elisha did, God never says, why, why, why? No. The language is even referencing you back to Numbers 25. Only two people, the two I've shown you in the Old Testament, do something that is zealous and considered good for it. And those are the two. In Paul's mind and all the Jews at his time, these two guys, those were their heroes. Those were the guys that they held up. Those are the people they're trying to be like. Zeal has this other connotation known as emulation. It's trying to be like something. Those are the guys they're trying to be like. When Paul is standing there as Stephen's being stoned, he's not thinking how horrible this thing is. He's thinking of Phineas. He's thinking of Elijah. He's thinking, I'm a good Jew. I'm just taking care of business. God would approve of this. God sees this as right in his eyes. Do you see how, how uh, Paul could do that? Or Saul, pre-conversion Saul, before he met Jesus Saul. Do you see how he's doing this in his mind? He's not out of his gourd, right? He, he's, got, he's got a pure, in his mind, he's got a pure motivation. And he's not alone, other people at his time are doing similar things, all right? In a moment, I'm going to show you why Paul is so against the Jesus movement at the time, the Jews who are following Jesus. But first, I want to tell you about this last passage up there in Maccabees. This is a book that would be similar to a history book for us, um, like American history, this would be Israelites' history. This would be Paul's history as he would know it. It's actually about the same amount of time for us from the American Revolution and our, what we call, founding fathers as Paul was from 1 Maccabees. That's about the difference in time, okay? Now, 1 Maccabees is about this Maccabean revolt. It's actually about this uh, Jewish festival that's still celebrated today called Hanukkah. What happens is this. There's this group that's in control of that region that includes Israel. The leader of this uh, small little, this, you know, it's not the whole empire as we would think of it. It's a smaller version that had been parceled out from Alexander the Great. And this guy's name, the leader of this at the time is Antiochus IV. Antiochus is often at war with the people, with the Egyptians at the south. They, they were called something different. Um, that little region. And so they're often warring against each other. Well, this one time he goes down and he's bested by them and he's torqued. He's upset. He's a little miffed. And you know what the, in psychology, what they call the kick the dog syndrome is? You take your frustration out on something else. The Israelites have nothing to do with this, but Antiochus is so just upset that he goes into Israel, who he's had a little issue with. He doesn't kind of like some of the stuff they do. Um, and he forces them to do the following. One is they must sacrifice to Zeus. Oh, by the way, Antiochus thinks he's Zeus incarnate. So they're actually sacrificing to him too. <laughs> Ego, I think not. Um, second thing he does is, oh, and you're going to sacrifice pigs and you're going to eat them. 
Okay, ooh, for them. Pork, that's another bad thing. Stop that whole circumcision thing and stop practicing the Sabbath. And they force them to do this by physical force. Now, it takes a while to build out from Jerusalem, but finally they make it a few miles away to this town where a guy named Mattathias Hasmonean lives. His son, Mattathias' son, is Judas, who they called Maccabeus, okay, where Maccabees comes from. Now, Mattathias is standing there. He's old. I mean, the guy's a crotchety old man. He's a priest, but he's a crotchety old man, and he, you know, you know how I've noticed this, and I'm not that old, but as you get older, you just start to say what you think. I mean, I'm not old. I can't imagine what it's going to be like when I am old, if I'm already starting to do that. Uh, but Mattathias, is kind of, I picture him kind of like this. He's standing there, and Antiochus's cronies come into town, and they put up an altar, and they say, make the sacrifice, Mattathias, because they can look at him and go, you're kind of a leader. Everyone's looking to you. You know, they, picture this. They put the altar there, say, okay, we've got to make a sacrifice to Zeus, and everyone you could just picture it, right? Everyone's out on the town square and all the heads turn to Mattathias. And Mattathias is standing over there like, mm -mm. And so they all see this and they go, you, come do this. Matthias is like, I don't think so. Not gonna happen. I mean, I'm old. What do I got to lose? You're gonna tell me what to do. <laughs> so what? What can you do to me? What happens though is the tension gets so ridiculous that a guy actually does step forward, one of the Jewish people of the town, to make the sacrifice. The text says that Mattathias is so filled with zeal that he slaughters the guy and all of Antiochus's men, and then he and his sons head for the hills. Fast forward a few years later, and after he's died, because remember, he's old, his son, Judas, goes in and is responsible for what we now know as Hanukkah, right? Because the temple's been defiled because of all this stuff, and he's capable of purifying it. The text in Maccabees does a similar thing that the text in 1 Kings does. It uses the same zealous language associated with Phineas. See, Phineas becomes the epitome of zeal in their mind. This is what zeal looks like. When you follow God, you have to think of Phineas. You have to stand up for what's right no matter what. I mean, we think of it as killing people, but in their minds, it wasn't just about killing people. Zeal wasn't just about that. It just so happens that in its extreme form, that did happen. But notice, I can only give you two examples where this happens in extremes form in the Old Testament. But in a Jew's mind, these became it. This became the pattern. Are you tracking? You see where this zeal is coming from? This is Paul's zeal. This is Paul's understanding of what it means to follow God at all costs, no matter what, right? He's zealous. Now, how is it that Paul can go from that kind of zeal associated with Phineas, Elijah, and Mattathias, and all of a sudden you get to the Paul that we know after he meets Jesus? What's going on? Does Paul just all of a sudden go, that zealous stuff was for naught? Or does something else happen? And I would argue that something else happens. It's not that Paul all of a sudden loses his zeal. You can read the New Testament epistles where he writes, and you can see a zeal in there. He is still zealous. It's just not that he's going around killing people. 
The major difference in terms of life is that he's putting his own on the line. What does it look like to believe in something so much that you're willing to die for it? That's basically where Paul comes to with Jesus. Now, when Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, notice what Jesus says to him. He says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me, Jesus? He doesn't say, why did you kill all my followers? He said, you're, you're persecuting me. Now, obviously, there's this big shift in Paul's thinking, but he doesn't abandon his Judaism. Christianity doesn't exist at the time of Paul as we think of it. It's just all kinds of versions of Judaism are around. All kinds of people are claiming to follow messiahs at the time of Paul. That's not unique. The thing that irritates Paul about the Jesus movement is their choice of a messiah. It is ludicrous. Paul will even claim this later, by the way. He still says it's ludicrous to follow a Messiah who dies on a cross. To follow a Messiah who dies is ludicrous and has been raised from the dead, right? This is nutso. That for Paul crosses the line. How can you defile a, an office so sacred with something like that? That just, they don't mix. Paul will say it's foolishness and a stumbling block to Jews and Gentiles alike. They just don't understand it. Who better would understand this than Paul? I mean, this is Paul's Tom Waits effect, right? This is Paul's moment where he goes, oh. And in Paul's defense, think about it. He's, all that's really happened in his shift is that he's gone from an area of expectation of waiting for the Messiah to the fulfillment of his expectations. Have you ever longed for and wanted something so much that you'd do almost anything for it and then it's finally given to you? It finally, you've hoped for it so long and finally happens? Do you then sit back and go, oh, great, that's over. Whew, that was a lot of work. Can't believe it took so long and just kind of forget about it. Or does it become the motivating factor for the rest of your life? See, for Paul, that's what happens. It becomes the motivating thing. Well, if this has happened, then, oh man. This means so much. If the Messiah has come and it is this guy, oh man. And that oh man is what you get in the New Testament in Paul's letters. It's this zeal. I want to read to you the way Paul talks about this himself. In Philippians 3, if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Philippians is toward the end of the, the New Testament, toward the end of the Bible. It's one of Paul's shorter letters. It's actually written, believe it or not, from prison to a church that is in Philippi, thus the name Philippians. And this is what he says to them. Three, and I'm going to start, I think it, uh, two. 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about circumcision by mutilating flesh. Now, this coming from a good Jew who is circumcised, by the way. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, notice this. Though I myself has reason for confidence in the flesh also. So what is Paul doing here? He's going, don't be like that. But if anyone has reason to be confident in the things they're confident in, I do, Paul says to the Philippians. Notice what he says. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, what does it say? As to righteousness under the law, what does it say? Can you say that? That is the most arrogant thing. To be, really, Paul? Blame. I think this is one of the reasons that uh, we kind of go, Paul, I don't know what to do with you. That sounds so arrogant. But notice how he's couching this. He's not trying to convince the Philippians that he's so good. What he's really doing is trying to show them why the Jews aren't, at least the Jews that don't follow Jesus. It's not about how good you are according to the law. All it is, for, for Paul, it's a complete switch. Notice, Paul doesn't say, I used to be a Pharisee. He does say he persecuted the church, but he doesn't speak of his zeal only in the past tense. Here it is. But notice in Romans chapter 2, I would encourage, and 9, chapter 9, 2, and 10, 2. Okay, so if you read Romans 9 and Romans 10, Paul does this. I'm going to summarize it for you. Paul says, I would rather, and I'm summarizing and paraphrasing, I would rather die a horrible death and wind up in hell if it meant that all of my kinsmen didn't. Basically, Paul says, I would rather be damned to hell than see any of my fellow Jewish brothers and sisters end up there. I mean, that's powerful, right? For a guy that has dedicated his life to Jesus and had that weights effect to still be compassionate towards his own people who seem to still be obstinate towards it everywhere he goes, he's facing these roadblocks. And that roadblock is one thing. It is not Christianity versus Judaism. That is not what it is. It is simply one thing, and that is Jesus. It is the difference between I know the Messiah is Jesus, and they have chosen to reject that notion. Paul, who better understands this? Who better knows what being zealous is than Paul for what they are zealous for? If you think that uh, Paul leaves his Judaism behind, just look at the end of the, um, the book of Acts. Remember that cover story of Paul? Paul, standing before the Jewish leaders, still claims association as a Pharisee. He still says, I'm a Pharisee. Now, that kind of changes our idea of Pharisees, doesn't it? He's still identifying himself with Pharisee-like things. But... More importantly, it's because of Jesus' resurrection 
that he says these things. He believes in the resurrection of the dead. Romans has this phrase, and it's up there. They have a zeal for God, that's the Jews down at the bottom, but not according to knowledge. It's the zeal I had, but it's a zeal without knowledge. It's a, what, what don't they know? They don't know who the Messiah is, and Paul does. They're zealous, but they need their zeal redirected. Paul says they need to be more like, well, Paul. Have you ever been in a situation where you believed one thing and then you come to find out that it was completely off base and the thing that you were actually against has become the right thing? Paul did. Have you ever been suffered because of following Jesus? Have you ever been in a situation where those around you gave you all kinds of grief because of the fact that you followed Jesus? Paul was. You can relate to Paul no matter where it is that you fall with zeal. You have zeal. Everyone has zeal. You might be zealous for sleep. You might be sleeping right now. You might be zealous for food. You might be zealous for all kinds. I'm zealous for all kinds of things. My kids are zealous for all kinds of things. My, my oldest daughters are zealous for Frozen. Can't compete with that. My youngest daughter, Autumn, she's zealous for grabbing at cell phones and dinner plates and waking up every two hours at night. I can't compete with that. Zeal is the thing that controls you. You have nothing in you that can stop it. That's what it's like for Paul. That's what it's like knowing Jesus. What do you need to redirect your zeal to Jesus from? That's the real question I think Paul would ask. He's been there. He's done it. No one knows it better than he does. And he's the perfect example for us. I want you all to stand, and I want to show you this. Uh, you can stand up. I want to show you this memory passage that has been a part of our look at the Paul I never knew. Think of the words that Paul says here. This statement by Paul becomes the thing that motivates and drives him. It's what he's zealous about. It's, Paul, isn't, Paul isn't zealous because he thinks everyone should believe in Jesus. Paul is zealous because he knows within himself that it's true. He's experienced it firsthand. He knows what it's like to be in the expectation area, and he knows that it's far better to realize that you're living in fulfillment, that the Messiah has come. Say this with me together. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has